are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. Anything possible? Live from the coldest place on earth, or close to it. It just seems like it. It's the 252 Sports Talk Radio is done by academics, Minnesotan academics to be specific, like Chris Garretts. And Sam Albury. And practicing cold fusion, it's Chris Moore. Man, <laughs> Living was, cold fusion. Chris, you were the latest to roll in. What was your car temperature when you arrived? Negative five. It Thanks for asking. It was still negative. Wow. Yeah, we're, we're into the polar vortex early this year in yep. December. I mean, I feel like this is a very Minnesota thing to say. December is not too bad, usually. No, not usually. Usually sort of January descends into yep. oblivion. But so, we're getting a head start. This it's time. always moments like this. I don't know why. I, I, I make a lot of hay out of my one year living in the South, but I love <laughs> <laughs> I loved when they would explain to me a damp cold, and I would say, you're talking about like 45 degrees. Let's lower that by 50 sure. degrees. <laughs> yeah. So the Kelvins. Can I, right. uh, just, I want to take a lot of time on this, but if you transported, like, say, like a visiting group of academics from Florida or Alabama and just plunked them down here... Wh- uh, we were talking about this last night on the way home. They would actually die. Yeah, like, they would like, like it would be instant death. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would be probably like as unable to function as I would be in 110 with with significant humidity. No, as right. you would be inside of an active volcano. <laughs> like that's what it would be. <laughs> okay, well, all right. Meteorology segment's done. Let's go on to sports here. Two five two. If you're just joining us for the first time, is uh, kind of every other week at this point podcast we like to do about sports history politics and whatever else we want to talk about uh this is all preparing for a new course that chris and i are teaching next spring and i think we should report on enrollment yes is it actually at 70 or did it drop down I to 69 i think it's 69 right now but we have we do have some in the waiting list so all they have to do is just go right chris ahead and add that just go ahead and add oh. it buddy is there a secondary market for seats in this course <laughs> like can i go on seat geek and and, oh, and maybe get seats? that would be amazing i have i've allegedly heard of that for a couple of courses at Bethel where seniors will register for the course when they don't need it and hold it for a sophomore who really wants it. That's an old... Well, we don't need to get into that. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. So anyway, with this all, I was kind of talking through things that at some point we'll actually have to teach. And so that's the thing Chris and I are now dreading and loving. Oh, I'm excited. Really get into it. Uh, But uh, towards that end, uh, we like to talk about things in the news. Uh, We also like to bring in people for conversations. This week, we're going to be joined by a Bethel University colleague from the philosophy department, Raven Aragon, who actually can uh, check off a few boxes for us. Mm -hmm. He has an interesting personal sports story. He teaches sports. But uh, I think the main reason we want to talk to him is he is also the parent of some very competitive athletes. And we wanted to get that kind of perspective as well. So he'll join us in segment two. Segment three will kind of give you some things to watch before 2019, the year in sports, is done. But let's start by checking in with Sam. Uh, Were our last three to see worth the watch? I think this Uh, is before Thanksgiving. Right. Uh, So Chris Moore said that we should watch the National Dog Show. Did Mm -hmm. did you end up watching any of this, Chris? I actually did. And uh, can can you give us a report from the field on that? Did you did either of you see the bulldog named Thor who won Best in Show? No, tell us. He walk was, us through. It looked like a bulldog. He was majestic. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. So Thor. Like if, if you just thought of like an aristot or a sort of a, a platonic ideal of a bulldog, that was Thor. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Now, how did the new breed do? I forget how to pronounce uh, this. The Azauka yeah. um, uh, did not make the finals. Um uh, and I, with good reason, it looks like a nightmare. It's it's really weird looking. It, it does. So my kids were watching part of this. Kind of this was right after the Macy's parade, right? Yeah. Okay. So they watched that, and they actually said, "Dad, what is that?" Yeah. And I looked. I had not actually followed up when you mentioned this. I looked at it, and I think my quote to them was, "It looks like that's the dog of Sauron." Yes. Or something. It was yeah. deeply disturbing <laughs> yes. to see that dog. I'm sorry. I'm owners of the uh, Azawak. But, but is is this the case where like it's it's like making baby steps to the finals like it's like a team that wins finally gets right. a first round victory in the nba playoffs and the next year they go to the conference finals are you saying the azalka is like is like um like uh, i don't know <laughs> I, who, i'm trying to think who the uh who the, who the basketball comp would be for this i don't know okay all right <laughs> never mind the la- nba so landscape guess, is so changed we'll, yeah, we'll move on sam what about your um i said that uh, i said you should watch the 2019 madison square garden empire classic uh where duke and in the finals duke ended up beating a uh, patrick ewing coached georgetown team uh, mm-hmm. in the garden uh we'll call that worth the watch sure now had duke lost it's uh, kind of stunner to was it Steve that was Boston? after that i was think after, right? yeah yeah i think that was after this is, is there kind of prohibitive favorite this year I feel like everybody's dropping. So. Louisville just lost. Yeah, last night. I feel like what you don't want to be is oh, number geez. one. Okay, Someone is smiling. Um, are you Ohio thinking it's the University of Michigan? Is that what you're saying, Chris? Or <laughs> well, they are ranked fifth in the country. Quite a um, jump. Yeah, but Ohio State at ten and zero is number three in the country. <sighs> Feels right. good. We have long hard. Feels real good. Too, so. uh, Chris Garrett, you said that we should watch the Grey Cup. You should final. not have watched the Grey Cup final. <laughs> it was non-competitive. The favorite team laid an egg. Winnipeg defeated the Tie Cats of Hamilton, thirty-three to twelve. The only redeeming feature is you got a weird Canadian score like twelve. <laughs> I was going to say, I kind of wish it was like thirty-three to twelve point five. That would have been the only thing that would have made it <laughs> I think, better. I think that'd be an Australian football. <laughs> That's score, right. Actually, That's right. Half point. All right. So those three were maybe. Mine was not worth the watch, but we thought we'd spend the rest of our first segment talking about some things that we know were worth the watch because they're in the past and they have stood the test of time. We thought we would each share our, um, well, I don't know what the right adjective is here. This is a combination of our favorite, most Mm -hmm. significant, and or most memorable sporting moments. Mm -hmm. Of the year 2019. This yeah. is a good December activity to do. That's it's right. Best of 2019. We've fallen into the list vortex That's here. right. <laughs> All right. We'll see if this drives any more traffic to, to Channel 3900. There uh, we go. We're going to do a serpentine-style draft. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was my idea, so I get to start. Yep. Is the rule that I just made right now. <laughs> now, let me preface this by saying I am not generally a huge soccer slash that football fan, and I'm not even really a close follower of uh, the Premier League or the Champions League, but... I'm enough of a follower to know that back in spring, specifically I think on May 8th and 9th, on consecutive nights, you had two pretty remarkable semifinals in the UEFA Champions League. And they both featured English teams that made astonishing comebacks to win. So I'll start with uh, the team that ended up the runner-up in the Champions League, Tottenham Hotspur. Um, Sam, what can you tell us about Tottenham Hotspur? It's not a, a premiership side I know very well. But you're my... I mean, it's one of the London. It's one of the the big London okay. teams. I mean, there's so there's lots of. I mean, it's it's usually been in the Premiership, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah. it's never won a European Championship. I don't believe so. And it still has so, yeah. right? It, it fell. 
And so what had happened was in the UEFA, um, in the setup that you play home and home, so you do two legs, uh, they had hosted the first leg against Ajax, which is the Amsterdam powerhouse, the Dutch team, and they had lost 1-0. And so not only were they down, but they had given up an away goal, which is the chief tiebreaker. Right. Right. Okay. So all of which is set up, they were then playing in Amsterdam on May 8th, gave up two first half goals, I think could have given up more even. So they were down three, three nil in aggregate, and then their uh, their Brazilian and functionally four nil right. with the with the or four or three and a half, yeah, yeah. 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 And but in the second half, uh, Lucas Moro, who's a winger from Brazil, scored two goals relatively early in the second half, um, but they still needed one more goal. And with basically seconds left, it's as close to a buzzer beater as soccer could get. In the sixth minute of injury time, of stoppage time, Lucas Moro had a kind of one touch goal to cinch his hat trick and send them through to Madrid in the finals. And we're not going to listen to both these Oh, no, let's, let's play the clip on Can that. Can we listen to this? Yeah, it yeah, It is yeah. unbelievable to listen to this. All right, here we this. go. Song. Sissoko. Comes to Deli Alley. Through to Lucas Moura. Lucas Moura has fired first through to Madrid to the Champions League final. So the reason this came to me is partly I, I decided I've been reading a book about sports and religion for our mm -hmm. class. And um, the first essay is by an Irish theologian talking about the premiership. And it's actually really about economics and theology. But one of the things he points out is that 14 current and former Premier League clubs actually started as Christian ministries. Hmm. And that includes Tottenham Hotspur. So originally it was founded by um, kind of 13-year-old boys from a couple of grammar schools in that neighborhood. And then they asked a local Bible teacher at All Hallows Church uh, to become the president and treasurer of their club. He was also a YMCA worker. So hmm. this is the era of muscular Christianity. Sure. And this was a time when Protestants especially were starting to think that a way of dealing with uh, juvenile delinquents, a way of cultivating a certain kind of masculinity was to organize church-based athletic activities. And so Tottenham started as a church club. I mean, it's quickly mm -hmm. shed that. But uh, I thought then back to this Lucas Mora hat trick because after the match, he was being interviewed by, I think, Brazilian reporters. It was a very emotional interview, and he kept talking about he had prayed the whole game, and God gave him the gift of scoring mm -hmm. this hat trick. And he went on Instagram and shared part of the Magnificat with God, all things are possible, right? Mm -hmm. And um, it, it was a good reminder that, like, I mean, Britain is not an especially religious country, but uh, it's not just American sports that have very publicly religious athletes. And it kind of harkens back to the founding of, of Tottenham Hotspur. Okay, so that was the That's first semifinal. The second one uh, involves another side that started as a club in a Methodist chapel, uh, which is Liverpool. Now, originally it was Everton, and they broke away in the 1890s. But uh, Liverpool has since gone on to bigger and better things. Uh, it had started uh, on the road in Barcelona. Lost 3-0 uh, on goals by um, Lionel Messi and Luis Suarez. And then came home, and they basically had to win 4 nothing to win this. And mm. they actually managed to win 4 nothing at Anfield, mm. which is one of the more remarkable venues in the Premier League. And it, it's worth hearing a little bit of what the Anfield miracle sounded like. Out again to Alexander-Arnold. Up against Sergio Roberto. Still Alexander-Arnold. Yeah, corner well done, Sean. Well done. It's done really well, Trent. Yeah, well done. 12 minutes to go in normal time. Liverpool 3-0. Corner, take it quickly, Origi! Yeah! yeah! He's given it! 
Yeah! Unbelievable! Game of the Reggae! Oh my word! Yes! This is extraordinary! And so I ended up, as I wrote a blog, a blog post about religious history and the premiership, the other thing I thought about is this is a different kind of religion. So another theme from this book is um, not just how traditional religions have used sports, but how sport itself can be a religion. So that one of the editors of the book is Art Remillard, who we interviewed way back in, I think, our second episode. Right. And he had talked about sport as a kind of religious experience that has its own kind of touch of transcendence. And... Right, the Anfield miracle, right? That, that that felt like a touch of transcendence with this religious community, with its myths and its heroes emerging. Um, the final piece that I thought of is I had watched the first episode of an Amazon Prime series called This is Football. And the first episode is called Redemption. And it's about a group of Rwandans whose way of healing from the genocide was to share their common love of Liverpool football. And it ends with three of them taking a pilgrimage to Anfield and singing the song that ended the clip that ended the uh, the uh, semifinal match in the Champions League. Well, and and I would say with that, I mean this this goes back to I think something we talked about in one of the first <laughs> episodes of the two five two, and and it's something that I keep coming back to in terms of why I love sports, which is if we were to make a sports movie about soccer, and you mm-hmm. said okay. One of the best clubs in the world with arguably the best player in the world comes in with a 3-0 lead and then Liverpool wins 4-0. You'd be like, nah, that doesn't like it doesn't pass the smell yeah, test in work. terms of like real realism, but it actually happened. Right. I mean, and that that's what's so stunning. I was when I pulled that clip, I was watching the the and, and the cool thing was the camera was on the commentators. This wasn't like the the feed. This is the cameras on the commentators, and you're watching them as each goal is scored, and they keep looking at each other like I I can't believe this mm-hmm. is happening, and and it and that's you you can't get that in a in a movie. You can't get that in fiction because you sort of were like well yeah, but the, someone's in control of this, and and instead this is actually this thing playing out. Yeah. Okay, so that, that fiction right. is dead, Chris. That's right. So that was very long. I don't expect all these moments to be that long, but because I've been thinking about some other connections sure. and reading, I thought I'd, I'd embellish a little bit. Okay, uh, let's see who's up next. Chris Moore. So I submitted my pick uh, prior mm. to the Big Ten Championship for Ohio State, <laughs> down two touchdowns entering the second half, came roaring back in the third quarter to defeat Penn State and claim their third straight Big Ten title. I, I have to so, ask. I have to um, ask though. Since since you sure, brought it up, go ahead. At halftime, so picture into my life, I went to bed at halftime because I go to sleep early, but my son was watching the game and mm-hmm. I said to him confidently, oh, Ohio State's going to, they, they're still going to, they're still going to win this. Yeah. Like, did you feel like that at halftime or did you feel like, oh no, what are we doing? I and or did you care? I wasn't quite as confident as you were going to bed, putting on your nightcap or whatever it was <laughs> right. happening there. But I, um, I still had hope. I still okay. had plenty of hope. I thought, cause I know our offense is really explosive. And so I thought, you know, there's a chance they could write the ship at halftime and make it a game. You mean all Ohio State's failures have not crushed your hope, Chris? That's amazing that that survived. <laughs> yeah, thanks, man. <laughs> okay, so in all seriousness. Can we talk about a different kind that's, of football? That's not – yes, we can. And I, I appreciate uh, the extended justification of your number one overall pick. I feel like you left the number one overall pick on the board here. Yeah. So um, I'm going to take uh, the Women's World Cup. And – I'm mostly picking this based on its future significance. I think that it's incredible. Uh, if you look at the list of the top 25 most viewed sporting events 
um, globally, this clocks in at a comfortable 13, and that might surprise you. There's only 12 men's events that got more viewership than the Women's World Cup did uh, this last year. And I think that's really surprising. And more so from the American perspective, the American women's soccer team is not just a, an athletic enterprise, but a very strong political mm-hmm. enterprise uh, led by very outspoken uh, wing Megan Rapinoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Women's World Sports Person of the Year. Was, was ESPN yeah. Sports Person of the Year. And also uh, an outspoken advocate for things like gender pay equity mm-hmm. and also an, a, um, a, a loud critic of the president. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time where there wasn't just sort of a, a group of athletes taking a stand by not going to the White House, for example, f- for a victory lap, <laughs> but but rather an ongoing conversation with, with, with politicians and specifically with the, with the president about the nature of, of gender and equity in the United States. And I thought that was really striking. I think it's something that we, even if you're not a fan of women's soccer, we will look back at 40 years from now as, a, as an important moment in the development of sports in American political life. So this might be more in these significant moments. Exactly. Than, right? yeah. I mean, we, I, like I watched the final. I'm actually struggling to remember moments from the final match. Exactly. So. This, this was not I, – I can't uh, develop the drama that right. you developed with the Champions right. League. Can, can we is... roll the clip of, uh, of the final seconds of the game? We absolutely can. For the fourth time, the United States of America are crowned champions of the world. And for the very first time, they've done it on European soil. It is finished at the Stade de Lyon in the final in victory and joy for the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely, I mean, as we imagine, like with some historical distance, you know, as we look back for significant uh, landmark moments, I could see this standing out much more than anything I talked about. Um, you know, Liverpool is one of few of these before. Right. It's yeah. miraculous. Yep. Okay. All right. So you've got two in a row. So well, I've, I've noticed that way. you guys have shied away from the major U.S. sports. Yeah. So I'm going to lean right into them. No, I'm not, actually. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm picking one just because this is a moment that that stands out to me personally. And uh, and it was a it, and it's a sport that I really love and a sporting event that I really love. And it was a very bizarre ending to it. And it's one of the big sporting events uh, in America, which is the Kentucky Derby was deeply strange this yes. year. Um, so leading into the Derby, the favorite Omaha Beach was scratched. And that happens mm-hmm. from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, on the 252, I gave you guys a pick. I said at uh, at 9 to 5, you should take – or excuse me, at 9 to 2, you should take maximum security. I was looking at buyer mm-hmm. speed figures. I said, this is what you should take. Watch the race. Actually, I, I saw the race in a restaurant as we were waiting to be seated. I saw maximum security win the race, and then I went and ate my meal, and I spent the whole meal talking about how I had it right and felt great about it. And then I came home, and I wanted to rewatch the the race, and I realized that maximum security did not, in fact, win hmm. uh, because it was disqualified. And so it was <laughs> fascinating to watch that race. <laughs> To watch a horse win it, win the race, and then to watch sort of the the process of okay, I mean it's a sport where the rules are applied mm-hmm. after the fact, really, because mm-hmm. you sure. can't throw a flag while they're racing, right? Um, and it was really fascinating, and and it ends up that the, the winner of the race was a sixty five to one long shot called wow. uh, Country House. I'm waiting to see if maximum security cross the line first. For Gary and Mary West has been disqualified. Or will Country House at hey, 65 to 1 away. be the winner of the Kentucky Derby? Yes. They disqualified. They did. So for the first time in the history of the Kentucky Derby, the horse that crossed the line first has been disqualified. After the objection, Country House wins the Kentucky Derby with Flavian Pratt at 
65 to 1. And it was I will I love the Kentucky Derby and I it doesn't even hurt me that the horse I picked lost cuz I didn't have anything on it. But it was like I was such a fascinating moment and and it is sort of this sense of like you know, it was the right call. And, and yeah. even though it's it's not as satisfying to watch an event where we watch it happen, we see some someone cross the finish line, and then we say, now let's figure out if they have if they really won. Right. But I think that's just an, an interesting take on it. Yeah. Sam, can I ask you a follow-up question yeah. on this? So in, a, in a other in basketball, football, we have a foul. Like, play resumes almost immediately. Mm-hmm. In, in, in uh, Olympic sprinting, if a player is disqualified, mm-hmm. it's, it's a shame, but it doesn't end their career. How ignoble is a DQ – not it's Kentucky not Derby. no because again these are animals right so mm-hmm. it's like it's it's not an issue for the horse these jockeys race so often and if you're if you're a jockey in the derby you're in the upper echelon anyhow sure so i'm sure um it'll be interesting i mean i'm not going to look at how maximum security is um marketed as it goes to stud but it will be sort of like um, how Chris Weber can talk about having play, been in two Final Fours, even though officially it's not. Like I'm sure they can market maximum security as it's a Derby winner. Mm-hmm. It's not a Derby winner, but it's a Derby. So I don't think it, I don't think that that matters. Okay. Uh, there's some legacy issues. I mean, the the owner trainer can't claim that they won the Derby, but, um, but yeah, yeah. I think it, I think it's actually the closest the closest comp is a forfeited championship. Okay. Yeah, I think. For more on us. Horse racing, you can go back into our archives and That's right. talking about this. Uh, speaking of which, I remember at one point earlier this season, you talked about the NBA offseason. Yes. And we want to circle back to that right So now. that's my number two pick is um, just the insane NBA offseason because without a game being played, the entire landscape of the league shifted. There yep. were – I'm not even going to recount anything. There were so many – players that moved around because I felt like we the NBA for a number of years had been moving in a particular direction we had super teams but then we had a super team of super teams with the Warriors and we saw that end and we saw Mm -hmm. all these people move around we saw Kawhi Leonard win a title and then go to LA uh, and, uh, Anthony Davis go to L- L- L.A. All it's I just feel like the Paul re- George go to L.A. Yeah, Paul George go to L.A. I feel like the whole league just said it was almost like in a video game when you said, "Okay, we're just going to like reboot the league and move everybody around." Mm-hmm. So uh, to me, um, we'll see what the meaning of that is as we go forward. But it's just I think this is probably what has to be one of the most significant off seasons in, in terms of not just one big move, but everything getting reshuffled. Yeah. So our things played out. I, I don't tend to follow the NBA very closely until we get to the spring itself. Well, that's what's interesting. Yeah. One of the best teams in the NBA is one of the teams that moved the least, and that's the Milwaukee Bucks. Right. Now, they had a nice, young, strong core, and so they basically just kept what they had, mm-hmm. and they've that's benefited them really well at the start of the season. But the other team's one that actually had a move. Anthony Davis uh, left the Pelicans and went to the LA Lakers to join LeBron James. And, and the Lakers that, gave up a lot of young talent. A lot, but it certainly looks like it's paid off. Yep. They're one of the best teams in the league now, too. Okay. I think we'll hear more about this in three to see later on. I think Chris will come back to that. Uh, let's see. So speaking of Chris, let's talk about your second pick. Sure. And uh, it's probably baseball, right? Like we haven't talked about baseball yet. Yeah. Let's talk about baseball. No. Uh, <laughs> again, I'm thinking about sort of a historical legacy here. And I'm going to make two claims. Tell me if you think you buy this or not. I'm going to argue that Tiger Woods has slotted himself in as the second best golfer of all time uh, behind Jack Nicholas. And I'm going to argue that during a period of his career, he was the most dominant golfer of any golfer at any mm-hmm. time period in their histories. Mm-hmm. I don't think those are minority opinions in either way. Okay. Yeah. Um, Could you push the second one to say the most dominant athlete in his or her sport at any time? 
You can make the case. Yeah, there's there's some fringe athletes and some like right. I, I go doctor Sergey Bubka as a pole vaulter oh. was even more dominant, but that's that's weird. Yeah. I, that's okay. Um, we'll save that for the Sergey Bubka episode. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> but uh, Tiger Woods has spent uh, a decade in the wilderness mm-hmm. uh, with injuries and mental health issues, even an arrest record. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of things uh, dragging him down, and over the last four or five years, he's been coming back. And what he did this year was basically tell all the casual golf fans, what all the serious golf fans already knew, which is that Tiger Woods is now an upper echelon elite golfer again. He will never have that level of dominance that he had um, at one point in his career, but he won the Masters this mm-hmm. year, and it was his first major win in almost a decade, and that's uh, that's significant, and it really kind of, if, if, if he wins no other majors, it will be a nice coda to what was otherwise an absolutely brilliant career. Do we have any audio of this, Sam? We do. Many doubted we'd ever see it, but here it is, the return to glory. And so this is this is a new kind of Tiger Woods. This is uh, I don't want to again we're sort of building narratives here, but mm-hmm. this is not the young brash blow out the field by ten strokes Tiger Woods. But this was a Tiger Woods that strung together four really impressive, very carefully plotted, meticulously planned rounds, and won a convincing win at the Masters. And it's a third act in a career, which is kind of interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. So we've had a lot of soccer. We've had some horse racing, some hoops, and some golf. Uh, I don't think we need any American football necessarily, but I think it's notable we have not yet talked about baseball just in time for my second pick. Now, we've actually talked a lot of baseball moments this season on the 252. We talked Mm. about Washington winning its first World Series since either the 40s or the 20s, depending on how you want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did a kind of a special episode, Chris and I, processing my very emotional reaction (laughs) to the Twins clinching a Central Division title. I want to talk about a different baseball moment. So it's a much smaller kind of setting in Roseville, Minnesota, this past September on a Saturday morning where my kids were pitching for the first time in their Mm. baseball careers. So Mm. we just did kind of an informal sandlot league just to get them ready for the next level where you have kid pitch. And it's not great in the sense anything we've talked about. But, like, for me, it was amazing because in, like, the second or third inning, it was the time for both of my kids, Lena and Isaiah, to pitch. Mm. And they're both actually pretty good. They they both struck out the side. But at one moment, uh, Lena was pitching to Isaiah. And I was far enough away. I don't know what she said, but she had him like 0-2. And, and she said something. Like, I think she was taunting him. And she grooved one. And he ripped it right back through the box and almost hit her. And I don't know if I'm good as a parent to be very proud of that, but it was a fun kind of moment for me Mm. because they will not go on to become professional athletes or college athletes, but it was fun to watch my kids compete with each other in a basically good-humored sort of way. And it actually Mm. reminded me of my kind of 2A moment, which was this August, my wife's grandfather, who's 95 and kind of failing health, um, is a huge baseball fan. And so a few of his grandchildren organized a baseball game of all his great-grandchildren from Mm -hmm. ages like 18 months all the way up to like 15 or so. 
And so we played this game for like three hours, and a few of us kind of in-law folks were out just fielding grounders. But there was a moment where the same thing happened, where one of my wife's cousins was taunting Lena, and she ripped a liner right back at him. Nice. So I've thought actually of those moments, because that's another way we do interact with sports. And that's something we're going to talk about more in segment two with uh, Dr. Van Aragon, who doesn't just teach sports, didn't just run very competitively, but is the parent of two very uh, um, gifted uh, sports playing children. So we're going to hear more from Ray in segment two. in sports history. Nassau, Bahamas, December 11, 1981. Just a few weeks shy of his 40th birthday, Muhammad Ali loses the final match of his boxing career, the 10-round decision to future heavyweight champion Trevor Burbick. It's just the fifth loss of Ali's long career against 56 wins, 37 by knockout. Bloomington, Minnesota, December 13, 1969. After winning a division title in his first year as a major league manager, Billy Martin is fired by the Minnesota Twins. The fiery Martin goes on to manage, and be fired by, the Tigers, Rangers, A's, and five separate times, the New York Yankees. New York, New York, December 16, 1930. The Amateur Athletic Union gives the first Sullivan Award to Bobby Jones, who had won golf's Grand Slam that year and then retired from the sport. The winner of 13 major championships in his career, Jones went on to design Augusta National and helped found the Masters. Chicago, Illinois, December 12, 1965. Bears halfback Gale Sayers ties an NFL record by scoring six touchdowns against the San Francisco 49ers. Playing in the mud at Wrigley Field, Sayers runs back one punt for a score, takes a pass 80 yards to the end zone, and scores the other four touchdowns on the ground. As the saying goes, you ain't seen nothing yet. Watch him now. Sayers, NFL Rookie of the Year. A one-man Gale. Dashing 85 dazzling yards on the longest punt return of the season. Here he is, galloping Gale, carrying the mail. This is his sixth touchdown of the game. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. Welcome back to the second segment of this season-ending episode of the 252. Uh, we're joined now by Ray Van Aragon, who teaches in the philosophy department with us at Bethel University. Uh, Ray, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Happy to be here. Is this your first podcast experience, or have you been on our, our network uh, teammate, Bookish at Bethel? I've been on Bookish at okay. Bethel, talking about wow. Nietzsche. So well, there'll actually, be hopefully significantly relevant. less. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Survival, well, not survival of the fittest, but power, right? Oh, I mean, that's the one Superman. of the things that sports okay. are all about. So in right, addition in to that, now. there are many other things we can talk about with sports with Ray. As we were trying to think about colleagues who would have a sports story to tell, sure. Ray Strikas is a particularly interesting one because you've participated in sports at so many different levels. So let's just start with your own sports story. Um, you you are, an, I was going to say were, maybe you still think of yourself, are an athlete. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into running specifically? Yeah, I mean, I, I started running in elementary school. I Distance running, that is. I realized it was something I could do. Um, did it through high school. Then I ran Division Three um, mm-hmm. at Calvin College, and I had mm-hmm. I had quite a bit of success. So 
yeah. So it was a bit, it was a huge part of my life as a as a college student. How did you get into running in the first place? Yeah, I mean, um, I remember remember in fourth grade running the mile run like for a fitness test mm-hmm. and like doing quite well, and I thought, hey, this is all right. Oh, interesting. So, um, but yeah, then so in Canada where I grew up. They don't have high school sports aren't as big a deal as they are here. It's more like you join a city, a club. Mm-hmm. So I joined the the Guelph Track Club. So Guelph's the city I lived in, and I ran for them for you know through high school, and then yeah, Calvin College where I went to school has has a really good um, cross country and track program. So you did both of those. That was good. Yeah. So like, what yeah. distance do you run in track? I ran the five thousand and the ten thousand primarily. Okay. So long and kind of dull, but. <laughs> Well, so help us understand, because I don't think either of us is a runner of any sort, let alone distance running. But we've actually talked about this before. We had a sports scholar named Art Remillard on before, who is a runner himself, writes about it. And we talked a little bit about, I mean, I, there have been some runners who say there's something almost spiritual about the experience of running uh, marathons or long distances, or there are a couple of joggers who have written essays like this. What mm-hmm. What is it like to be a long distance runner at that level? And does spiritual enter into it? Well, um, I mean, some days it's beautiful. Some days it's wonderful. Uh, but in a way, you know, when you've got to run 80 miles a week or whatever, it's not like, you know, it's a drag. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to keep every day. You got to get your 10 or 12 or whatever miles of running in. Um, but I do have this vivid memory of my senior year when I was really, I'd really gotten fast. I was really successful. I just remember one moment where I was running in a race in Chicago on the lakefront and I was like uh, one mile to go and we and we were running, it was like running under a tunnel or something in a park there and I remember just thinking my feet were barely touching the ground mm-hmm. and that was, mm-hmm. that was, I mean I was tired but it was kind of a rush at the mm-hmm. same time. Sure. Right. So that was, that was spiritual. It wasn't the only time but that, I'll never forget that feeling. So running, unlike some other sports you could do in high school or college, is a lifetime activity. Is it something you've continued to do? Do you run for leisure or fitness? Do you run competitively? Well, two things. First of all, once I got out of college and I got out of that structure of, you know, running every day with friends and with with the team, I I kind of fell out of it. I mean, it takes a lot of, it it takes a a whole structure, like I say, to do that. (laughs) It's hard to get out there and run, you know, 12 miles a day just um, by yourself. Um, but so yeah, I didn't run very much. I ran a marathon eight years ago, and I'm actually training for one now. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, so yeah, but that's mostly just for, you know, just to achieve it. Sure. Okay. Um, now another way you participate in sports is here at Bethel. Last was it spring? You taught a class on the ethics of professional sports. Right. right? I've done it a couple of times okay. uh, last spring and last fall, I think. Okay. And this is a section for a uh, first year gen ed course. Actually, all three of us have taught called inquiry seminars. Mm-hmm. So yeah. in a sense, it's kind of an introduction to well, to inquiry, to the liberal arts, different disciplines. So it's not necessarily on a topic where the professor is an expert in the field. It's often more where you have a question of some sort. So what led you to want to do a section on sports and ethics? Um, well, obviously, I've got the, the background in ethics being a philosophy professor, but and I love, I love sports, and I think there are so many ethical questions raised um, in sports, both in, you know, performing, uh, being an athlete, um, being an executive, being a referee, and, and really being a fan, too. Hmm. Um, I mean, there are there are virtuous ways of being a fan and not so much, right? And there are rules in sports where, where people are, you know, athletes seem to be um, 
uh, used, exploited. Um, so yeah, there's all sorts of ethical issues that are raised from all sorts of angles. So, well, let's take maybe, if I can call it a positive case of that. I mean, what's a way in which, I know you do virtue ethics is something you have some interest in. What's a way in which sports cultivates uh, certain kinds of virtue? Um, I, I think um, striving for excellence mm-hmm. is certainly one of the things. I mean, there's there's always cases where it's not so clear that virtue is being cultivated. You know, there's sort of a cutthroat uh, element where you've got to stop and think, you know, the degree to which a virtuous person would engage in that or would enjoy watching that. Um, but certainly, you know, dedication, perseverance. Um, in sports, things aren't given to you. Um, you have to go out and earn them. Mm-hmm. So those those are all connected to virtue. And, and of course, sportsmanship. I mean, um, recognizing the humanity and the dignity of people you're competing with, um, it's a very important thing to do. What's more, What's, sorry, go ahead, Chris. Um, you mentioned uh, virtue in fandom as well, and many of us have, have a lot more opportunities to be fans than we will to be athletes. So what right. are some of the va- virtues of fans? I mean, um, it's, it's uh, easier. I mean, you can support your team in, in a virtuous way, in a good way. I mean, but, it's, but there are a lot of questions. I mean, what about the ways that people sort of live and die with their teams? Mm. Is that a good thing? I mean, it can be, I think, but then when you sort of get angry at the players who are doing their best and they fail, you know, or and and along a different line, you think about the kinds of sports that seem to celebrate violence and hmm. so do the fans, right? I mean, hmm. like like they say when, you know, you go to a hockey game and there's a lot of noise when there's a goal scored by your team, but there's probably more noise when a fight starts. Hmm. Um, and, you know, and the crowd's kind of cheering it on, hoping for one. And there's something not good about that sure so right. that's not a thing we talk about what was um what was an ethical ambiguity that your students especially wrestled with or maybe even class opinion ended up being divided on the um, probably on that yeah. uh, i mean because on the one hand there's you know these people um the these players are getting paid for that they know that that's what they're getting into especially you know the the goons the fighters right not they're they're not um there aren't as many. It's it's not as uh, much a position now. Players aren't brought in just to fight as much anymore. But there's that question. You know, they're they're brought in to do that. But on the other hand, they're volunteering, right? So these are things that will, in fact, damage their brains. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, they're making a lot of money, and and they have the freedom to decide that. So there's questions mm-hmm. about, you know, paternalism should should the system be set up in such a way that people aren't allowed to do things that will harm them or not, should they have autonomy, should they have the freedom to choose to do things that are damaging to them um, when those things make them a lot of money. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a good model of what we're hoping to do with our own Gen Ed sport. Like, this is a way of getting at some larger questions, right? Um, yeah, for sure. Any advice on how to teach sports as a, as a set of uh, scholarly inquiries uh, with Bethel students in the year 2019-20? Um, that's a that's a good question. I mean, um, one of the things is you've got to have students sort of keep up on sports, mm-hmm. right? Because um, students have a lot of things distracting them, mm-hmm. and while they have sort of a general interest in sports, they might not have a lot of you know deep knowledge about what's going on now and certainly the history of sports. Did you have that's a lot of student athletes in the class for a uh, fair number? Okay. Yeah, football players and yeah, and yeah. a fair number of people. I mean, do you get the sense that they were already wrestling with some of these questions, or were you introducing new material for them? No, probably to some degree it's introducing new material because, you know, they've played football and haven't really 
had any questions about it. I mean, those questions are becoming more prominent in our culture, football, football in particular. So they've heard that, but but yeah, they haven't really wrestled with them, I don't think. Okay. Interesting. Well, let's shift gears both in terms of the sports we're talking about and the kind of participation and linger a little bit on what it's like to be a parent of competitive young athletes. Maybe just tell us a little bit, as much as you feel comfortable sharing, about your kids and, and what they do, and then we'll talk about what it's like to be a parent of such athletes. Yeah, so my kids uh, play golf. So my son, Caleb, he's a freshman at, in college. He's playing golf in Division One. My daughter, Catherine's a uh, freshman in high school. Um, they've had a lot of success. We've taken them to tournaments around the country. They've, they've, yeah, they've they've done well in state, and so they've gotten quite a bit of attention. Do you see as a runner and and your children as golfers, both in many ways kind of individualistic sports? You can play them on teams, but the, your performance is individualized. Right. Do you see some other kinds of commonalities between them, even sort of contemplative qualities between the two of them? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, it, they really are quite different. There is there is a degree of focus and dedication that you need. So mm-hmm. you have to, you know, when you're running and when you're running a race, you have to have your mind there. Um, but golf even more so because, um, you know, with golf and, you know, watching it as a parent, you certainly know this. Um, uh, things can fall apart in an awful hurry if, mm-hmm. if you lose your focus. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so there there are many ways in which it's different. Had you played golf yourself, Ray, or how did your kids get into the golf? Um, I I play golf just for fun. Mm-hmm. I played in grad school. I get up at six o'clock every morning and and go go play at the. They, we had at Notre Dame. There was a there was a cheap little course they had, and for students they could play for fifty dollars for the whole summer. <laughs> oh, That'd wow. be a whole summer pass. So I That's was fantastic. I was out there every morning. But no, then um, I mean I love golf. I've always loved it. Um, but then uh, when when Caleb was really young, he was he'd walk around hitting his plastic with his plastic golf clubs. And then uh, for his third birthday, we got him a set of metal clubs. And it was one of those things where, you know, he barely lift the club, but he'd whack it with all his might. And he hit it every time. You know, he hit the ball every time. I thought mm-hmm. well, that, that takes some coordination. So that's. You know, that's really how he got into it. Mm-hmm. So in the first segment, I mentioned taking my kids to baseball this past fall and realizing they're decently good at their level, but they're never going to play this professionally or in a high-level college or anything. Um, but you've got kids who are on that track. I've got a Division One athlete already and then maybe another on the way. Um, at what point did you realize that? And was that something that caused you any concern any anxiety or was it quite natural to say okay this is their this is their talent their gift their interest we're gonna do what's necessary to to put them on that path well well you're right that we decide we were going to do what's necessary so we you know with their their parents who travel with their kids a lot more than we do we we'd go on maybe one big trip a year maybe two mm-hmm. um but yeah we th- we kind of thought fairly early on we thought our kids could get college scholarships this way. And so we treated this as their job. I mean, our kids mm-hmm. did not, well, you know, our son uh, was at that age. We didn't make him get a job, you know, out, you know, working somewhere. We just said, the two things you're going to do is study and play golf. And because mm-hmm. that's what's going to get you, that that's what's going to help pay for your college. Right. And so we knew that, um, that fairly early. We didn't, um, we have no, illusions about professional golf. 
I mean, he could he could go play professional golf, but that's a hard, hard life when you're playing essentially in the minor leagues and professional golf, trying to work up to the PGA Tour. That's a hard life, and if he wants to try it, he'll have our blessing, but I'm not sure he'll want to. Okay. Um, what is, I mean, we've talked about college sports a lot in the 252, but not actually usually about golf. So, right. I mean, if your image of college sports, the Division One, is football or basketball, how is Division One golf similar to or different to those? Um, to those. I mean, I mean, it's sports, not a, right? it's not a revenue generating mm-hmm. sport, of course. Right. Teams are smaller, um, but they do travel. It always surprises us. They, you know, they play what twelve tournaments a year. They miss a lot of school. Um, they travel all over the place. So, yeah, it's just not as attention-getting. Um, they do get, you know, some crowds, and there's definitely pressure, but but it's not it's not the same. When did recruiting start for your son? When did you start getting letters or coaches calling? Or? There, are, I mean, there are limits. So I should say with Catherine, our daughter, she started to get attention already in seventh grade. So mm-hmm. that's, um, that's really kind of absurd. Um, but with Caleb, I don't know when he was, uh, I think, I think one school was watching him starting in about eighth grade, but he didn't get more wide attention until he started looking around and visiting places. You do, it's a strange sport for recruiting, um, in part because you've sort of got to put yourself out there. You've got to indicate for, for the most part, you've got to indicate an interest in them before Mm. they're not going to recruit a player who they don't know is interested. In our power, are the powerhouses in golf similar to the powerhouse schools in football, basketball, or do other schools tend to actually invest more in the sport? Um, I, I mean, Stanford, uh, Pepperdine, actually, out mm-hmm. in California. Mm-hmm. So some of the California schools are big, mm-hmm. you know, Oklahoma, Georgia. Um, in the Big Ten, oddly enough, it's Illinois that tends to be the, the top school. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're, um, and they've got fabulous facilities. So, so yeah, it's it's strange who's who's good. What schools seem to focus on golf? Hmm. Well, Ray, maybe as an exit question, let me try to connect a couple of pieces. Were there ever any moments uh, in teaching these sections of uh, ethics and pro sports where you thought about either your own um, path as a runner, or about uh, your kids as you thought about either virtue or uh, kind of ethical dilemmas, quandaries? Um, it was never very personal for you when you were teaching. It, it was personal when you think about youth sports because the kind of um, obsession that we've seen from parents, I mean, we've seen very bad behavior mm-hmm. of parents at this, you know, there's bad behavior at Little League Baseball, sure. um, but we've seen bad behavior by parents at these top-level golf tournaments. We've seen some pretty, and there's, I mean, some kids are so driven and pushed by their parents, it's just, um, it's just astonishing. Um, so we've seen that, but as far as virtue goes, I mean, I think golf and running too, they're great sports for promoting virtue because in golf, you ha- you know, the, the statement, you have to play the ball where it lies. I mean, you can get bad breaks, you can screw up, um, and you just have to keep playing. And that's, that's one thing I, um, I don't know, but I, I really admire our kids that they never quit. And that's the one thing. Mm-hmm. We've always said, we don't want you, you play two bad holes, you keep on playing. And they've been, you know, I don't know how many times they've started badly and come back and made a decent round. And you do see lots of players, they start badly and they fall apart. Um, So that's one thing we've strongly encouraged our kids 
don't do that, you know? If you get a bad break, just keep going. So can I ask a piece of advice from, uh, mostly from you, Ray, but also maybe from you, Chris? My kids are younger than both of your sets of kids. Um, there's, we, we all kind of have a sense of what bad parental behavior looks like or really egregious bad parental behavior. What's something that's more marginal that you would say as an ethicist, you might say, consider this as you become a parent of a, of a, of a child participating in sports. What's something you'd recommend um, actively doing to be a more virtuous parent? Well, I'm at a very different level. So we've, both because of the abilities of our kids and just because we've made some choices about how we want to use our time, that they will never do travel sports. They do baseball and basketball. Isaiah could probably play travel baseball, and we've simply decided we don't think he's ever going to be able to get a scholarship, and we'd rather him actually go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays. Um, and so at the level of rec league, one thing I've really admired is it doesn't fit the stereotype I had growing up of little league parents. Instead, what I've seen is more, I went to a seminar at church once with um, a woman who teaches soccer and does soccer ministry. And she talked about how competition is actually from Latin for striving together. Mm. And she had this really nice illustration about how everyone is playing a role in that. I mean, the teams are striving together. The umpires and coaches are striving together. The fans, the parents are striving together. And so I think about that a lot. Like, as I sit there, there is a role I'm playing. Like, uh, hmm. a, a grounder skipped off a pebble and hit Isaiah in the face. Like, I had a certain role I was supposed to play in that moment. And a lot of my role is to not say anything. That's been the hardest thing for me mm -hmm. is I feel like I'm supposed to be coaching in the middle of that. But there actually is someone else with that role. I'm supposed to be doing there to encourage not just my son, but the others. And the one thing that I think our leagues have done really well is parents kind of feel that sense of being in it together. You are there to encourage everyone um, who's part of it, and mostly just to keep that sense of play, even as you're learning the skills and rules of a sport. And some of those kids will then go on to do higher levels of competition. So that's what I've taken away from doing this for about three years now. Okay. Yeah, and we've had uh, we've had some of that as far as team golf goes, and we've met lots of wonderful people through golf. But I think uh, for me, the real challenge um, is not to get too wrapped up in the results. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, rather than you being the fan, you know, you're the parent, and you know, fans can have their ups and downs. And of course, you care about your kids more than you care about anyone else out there, um, and you really can. It really can be hard to see your kids struggle. I mean, it really is hard, but you have to, you know, not get into that, you know, get angry at your kid or, you know, expect better from your kid or whatever. You have to, you have to avoid, you know, they say you have to avoid living through your kid and understand that you're there to support uh, your child. Um, and, and yeah, don't take it personally. It's not about you, you mm -hmm. know? So, and that, it, you, you see that and it is a, you know, for, for any parent, I think that's something they struggle with. I think, yeah, I think dealing with results has been interesting. Like, my daughter holds the results very loosely. She really does not care very much you know, if she wins or loses, how she does personally. Isaiah, my son, is very different. But it's been, it's been great. I think the most educational thing about sports so far is our kids are already pretty good at being self-aware, asking questions about their world and themselves. And we try to do a lot of processing of the day with them. But... Especially in those moments where Isaiah is so invested in the result, it's been good to try to get him to think about how to step back from that, to think about what happened, why it happened, what was in your control, what was in your control, what mm -hmm. you can learn from that, what you can celebrate. And then also to learn the point at which you end that and you release that back into the past and you don't dwell on 
that, that one moment knowing that you're going to have many others. That It's actually been a good, I guess, child development um, kind of thing we've been working through. Well, Ray, thanks for giving us insight into something, you know, some sports that we tend to overlook, some roles that we tend to overlook, and then also to add the, the piece of ethics to the mix. It's been a great way to wrap up our season here. Thank yeah, you. happy to do it. Thanks. Okay, we'll be right back to preview three more things to see this December and to say goodbye to 2019 for the 252. <laughs> Get in touch with the show by emailing us at channel3900 at gmail.com. back to our last segment as always we're running out of time so let's go straight into three to see starting with chris moore yeah so the nba usually showcases some of its best teams on christmas day and this year is no exception if you're not an nba fan but want to watch one game this season for cultural relevancy you know to be able to talk to your friends at the water cooler check out the 7 p.m game between the clippers and the lakers this battle for L.A. features LeBron James and Anthony Davis for the Lakers versus Kawhi Leonard and Paul George for the Clippers. Taken together, this is the most star power you can see on a court outside of the All-Star game. Incidentally, both teams in the top three of the Western Conference standings. How Gen X am I that you said Battle of L.A. and I thought of Rage Against the Machine. Was... <laughs> okay, anyway, Sam, so emo. Uh, Saturday, December 14th, one of the most famous rivalries in college football continues with the annual Army-Navy football game. In the overall history of the game, Navy leads the series 60-52 to 52 with seven ties, but has lost the last three meetings. So number 23 Navy, 9-2, and two, uh, will be wearing 1960s throwback uniforms to celebrate Heisman Trophy winners Roger Staubach from 1963 and Joe Bellino from 1960. Uh, they are currently a seven-point favorite to defeat 5-7 and seven Army, who will be wearing uniforms honoring Army's, the Army's first cavalry division because in the army navy game it's all about fashion do you guys have a rooting interest in this game no like I, i've got a lot of relatives who've been in the navy so i feel like we always root for navy but like a lot of people seem to watch this and i never know if they have a side or if it's just kind of general patriotism or what gets people to watch this i don't know honestly like my son is really a fan of teams when they'd wear like throwback uniforms or like mm. like the design of uniforms so when I was talking with him about this, he was genuinely excited to, to look at the uniforms and just the idea that, like, yeah, why wouldn't you have something special you wear for this particular day? So so uh, I, I'll actually check in because I want to see what the uniforms look like. Okay. Uh, you guys remember playing floor hockey in gym class? I do. Loved it. Oh, it's not just a Minnesota thing. No, it's I awesome. Was, I was not sure. Okay, well, what I like to call the beautiful game. I contested. <laughs> Uh, It can be contested at levels higher than fifth grade. Technically, it's called floorball, and the best women floorball athletes in the world are in Switzerland right now settling who's number one. The last time Sweden didn't win at all was 2005 when the Swiss eked out a victory in Singapore 4-3. The men get their turn next year. Sweden and Finland are the only countries that have ever won that floorball championship. 
They could kind of map sound to have team handballs. So I love it. Love this. And I'm, I'm going to be doing some Google searches because I want to see what we get I, a faculty <laughs> league of floorball going. I would be in. Totally. Oh, that would be great. I think Roomball is kind of done. Okay. Yeah. Um, barring kind of uh, special episodes that we may or may not be efforting, uh, this is the last uh, episode of the 252 for this, its second season. <laughs> oh, wow. I thought you were just going to announce this was the end of the no, show. No, okay. No, no. We'll come back better, bigger and better than ever, probably in February. We'll, we've mm-hmm. got J term things going on. But yep. We will be back in February. Uh, at that point, we'll actually be into the class, so I guess this will feel a little bit different, but we'll figure that out. It's been fun to figure out what to do in this kind of uh, interregnum here this fall, but I appreciate the chance to talk to you guys about sports, history, politics, etc. every couple of weeks. Likewise. Okay, Chris, you want to take us out? On behalf of my colleagues here about the university, you can always get in, in touch with us at our email address uh, and join us and find us on our Podbean account as well. Uh, thanks for listening, and go Royals. Go Royals.